Good morning, Redeemer. Uh, my name is Ashley Satterwhite. My husband, Scotty, and I attend the Houses Community Group. We're glad you're here this morning. Um, I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and there prepared the, the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one another, to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Ashley. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name's Tanner House. I'm the, I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us. There's a connect card under your chair. If you would take a minute, fill that out. Let us know how we can serve you. Let us know how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. And uh, as Ashley just read, we're in Mark 14. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. My son Levi will, will bring you one. Um, we use the ESV if you're on your your phone or your tablet or something like that. Um, first, I just want to say Happy Father's Day, if that applies to you. Um, the older I get and the more I do the job that I'm in, the more I realize that dads are incredibly important. And so just want to encourage you men with kids to really take an active and intentional role in discipling your kids uh, towards faith in Jesus. And so... Um, we're all just trying to figure this out and run this race together, and so um, just be encouraged, man. You're not alone in that boat, and it's a, it's a hard road, and we would love to, to serve you in that process. I uh, also just uh, want to acknowledge that today is also Juneteenth, and so um, today is the day where the Emancipation Proclamation that freed the slaves reached its fullest extent, and um, the last of the former slaves were, were alerted that they are no longer in slavery, but they, they have been set free. Um, and so as we're continuing to fight for justice and racial reconciliation in this country, I do want to just take a moment and, and acknowledge Juneteenth today. And so uh, I actually think it's probably more significant than July 4th in a lot of ways, because now all men are, are free legally. And so... Anyways, um, yeah, I just wanted to, to recognize Juneteenth today. So, again, thank you for being here. 
Hey, about 10 to 12 years ago, I was listening to this guy a lot. He was a preacher. His name was, he is a preacher still and pastor. His name's Matt Chandler. He's the uh, president of our, of our church planning network. And I was like trying to figure out how to preach. So I'd listen to his sermons and still a lot of his material and imitate a lot of his gestures. And, but anyways, he, every time he'd take the stage, he'd go like, okay, we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of ground to cover. Let's get started. And he'd just like jump in. Like, no, usually when I'm introing a sermon, I like to tell a couple of funny jokes or have some shallow musings to like get you to drop your hands or something so I can punch you in the throat later. But like, no, he'd never do that. He'd just like come in and be like, all right, let's go. And so that's going to kind of be my approach today. Uh, this is a very important text in terms of... Um, you know, Bible stuff. All scripture is, is very important. But in terms of some very important theological matters, this text is super important. This text is inviting us to hold the sovereignty of God, meaning his, his rule, his reign, his power, his authority over time and space. Uh, it's inviting to hold that, the sovereignty of, of God, and the responsibility of man, meaning our behavior, our sin and our accountability to it, it's inviting us to hold these things in tension, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We are asked to hold these things in tension. And it's important for us to hold these things in balance because if we don't, we will default too far in one direction or the other. So let me see if I can explain it. We believe at Redeemer Church that God is the primary agent in salvation, and salvation is only found in Him. So the only thing that I contribute to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary in the first place. God in love calls people to faith in Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit to convict of sin, and He calls us to a belief in Jesus. This is done not by any human merit. This is not done by any worth found in me. He calls people to salvation in Christ simply because it pleases him to do so and gives him glory to do so. So now there's some churches, and I'm not like going to kick these guys around, but there are some church churches that teach and believe that God has invited all to salvation in Christ, but we are responsible on ourselves, on our own, for choosing Christ. My, uh, my personal theological conviction is that when left to myself, I'm never going to choose God on my own. My sin speaks otherwise, that I'm never going to choose to follow God without his work in my heart. But I am, however, responsible and accountable for sin that I've committed. I'm responsible for my own obedience or my own disobedience to Christ. And as I grow in my relationship with Christ, I then grow in an awareness and grow in an understanding of how bad my sin really is and how much I need to be forgiven. So when sovereignty of God and responsibility of man get out of balance, there can be a real danger in how we approach God and how we approach the scriptures. So I don't want to fall into this trap thinking that I'm forgiven, so now I can do whatever I want to do. I'm forgiven, so I get to live however I want with no thought about Jesus, with no thought about the cross, with no thought about the resurrection, with no thought about heaven or hell. Or the other side is, like, if God knows who will and who won't be saved, then what's the point in praying? 
What's the point of living missionally? What's the point of engaging in evangelism? When we don't hold these things in their proper places, we're in danger of, of mishandling the Word of God. And so there's a lot that's going on in this text that's going to be important for us and timely for us. And as we're unpacking this text this morning, I just ask you to consider two things. What does this text teach me about Jesus? What does this text teach me about myself? This text is rich with both the humility of Jesus and his divinity, meaning his godly attributes. Both his humility and his godlike nature and character are on display here. And yet again, we're going to see the love of Christ for his creation. And I think it's so important. I think it's so important that I don't want us to miss any of it. My desire for us as people trying to follow Christ with our lives is that we would view ourselves and view Christ in the correct way. So this text invites us to all of this. This text invites us to behold the beauty of Jesus and also just the benefit of getting to be his child. So let's pray together and, and let's dive in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, we are thankful people. Show us our need for your grace. Show us our need for your mercy. Show us our need to be forgiven and loved by you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you'd pray for yourself that the Lord would use this time to draw you in, to bring you closer to himself, that the Lord would use this time for you to really reflect on the cross and resurrection and its impact on your soul and your eternity. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, it says this, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So just as a, a review from last week, we saw this woman um, who we know from John's gospel. This, this woman's name was, was Mary. Uh, she had a sister named Martha and a brother named Lazarus. Jesus had raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead four days, and Jesus raised him, raised him from the dead. We also know from Luke's gospel that Mary, prior to meeting Jesus, prior to having a saving encounter with Jesus, was by Jewish standards what they would call a sinner. If you have that name, sinner, behind your name, it means that uh, you are walking in some very public, very uh, controversial maybe, like, public, ongoing, unrepentant sin. And here's Jesus, loving and merciful to her. And, and her and her siblings become some of Jesus' followers, and they become some of Jesus' closest friends. And it's very likely that his disciples in this week of Passover are staying at their house in Bethany. Bethany's two miles from the city of Jerusalem. Throughout the last week of Jesus' life, we see him coming and going from Jerusalem in and out of the city. So he's probably staying with them. And so we see in last week's text, a couple of days prior to, to the cross, a couple of days prior to the uh, arrest of Jesus, 36 hours or so, Mary comes in and pours a very expensive ointment all over Jesus. 
And while she's doing this, a handful of people were upset because this appeared to be like such a huge waste of money. The text tells us last week that this perfume was worth like one year's wage. And she pours it all over Jesus. And people are upset. We should have sold this. We should have given this money to the poor. And Jesus says, hey, leave her alone. She's preparing my body for burial. Then one of Jesus' 12 disciples, his name is Judas, he goes out and he makes arrangements for financial gain in order to betray Jesus. So I'm going to give you Jesus, you're going to give me money. And so now, that was on a Wednesday, now we move into Thursday. This is the last normal day of Jesus' life. And it's time for the Jews to celebrate the Passover. Passover is a celebration. If you go back to Exodus in the Old Testament in your Bible, uh, Passover is a celebration where they remember when they were in slavery to Egypt and God sent plagues on Pharaoh. God sent plagues on the nation of Egypt because he refused to let the Israelites go. And then God sends one more plague on them. God tells them, I'm going to kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. But he tells the Israelites, hey, take a lamb a pure and spotless lamb, and kill it and put its blood over the doorpost and the lentils of the door of your house because the Lord is coming and he's going to strike down the firstborn in all the land. And when the Spirit of the Lord sees the blood on the doorways, the Spirit of the Lord would thus pass over, huh? uh, saving the people inside the house where the blood was. And then they would eat the lamb that they sacrificed according to the command of God. So the Passover, they're celebrating their freedom from slavery. And Jesus is about to call a huge audible in the entire religious order of the day. But first, we see him preparing to host this Passover meal for the last time with his disciples. So we have Jesus and we have his disciples and we can safely assume that they've already purchased this lamb. It's already been sacrificed for their, their Passover meal. But they have a lot to do and his disciples are aware of this. Um, they haven't made any preparations so they ask Jesus, hey Jesus, where do you want us to go and get prepped for you to host your Passover meal? And Jesus gives two of his disciples, Luke tells us it's Peter and John, uh, he gives them some instructions on what to do. Verse 13, it says, And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. So just a couple of things to take note here. Jesus tells them, follow this man. He's carrying a jar of water. This task is reserved for servants, and it's usually reserved for women servants. So Jesus tells them, there's going to be a guy with a jug of water. Follow him. Follow him to his house wherever he goes, and then talk to the owner of the house about using the house. So Jesus is ensuring that his disciples know what the plan is. You're not following any random person. You are following this one specific guy. Jesus also doesn't reveal the identity of this man because perhaps he isn't wanting to reveal who the man is or the location of the Passover because, remember, he's about to be betrayed. This is purely speculation on my part, but all that we can safely assume is that the owner of the house is a follower of Jesus, 
And so Jesus is protecting this man at this moment and protecting his, uh, the timeline. Like there is a specific time foreordained for Christ to be arrested and crucified. And so he's not revealing the identity of this man. Again, that's speculation, but that seems reasonable to me. So I'm going to go with it. So this man's going to provide Jesus and his disciples with everything they need to rightly celebrate the Passover together. So based on Jewish customs, the owner of the house is more than happy to host and accommodate Jesus and his 12 disciples for the celebration. So the two disciples, they follow Jesus' instructions and find everything just as Jesus had said. Verse 16, the disciples set out and went into the city, found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. Here again, we see Jesus, fully man, fully God. We see his human nature. We see his divine, godlike nature on display again together. Jesus gives his disciples so specific instructions, and not one single detail was missed. So his disciples, they went into this guest room, which, which will later be known as the upper room, and there they prepared the Passover feast according to the Jewish customs. The disciples would prepare the Passover lamb that had been sacrificed for the feast. And then they would gather at this feast, remembering their redemption from slavery as a people. Jesus was creating for them and for all of his followers throughout time a new and greater Passover, where he, the Passover lamb, would be sacrificed once and for all to complete our redemption. And then let's look what unfolds next. Verse 17, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So, when you look at the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is characteristically the most succinct gospel writer. Like, he's getting you to the point very quickly. So if you read Mark alone in isolation, it would appear that the disciples walk into this room and they sit down at this table to eat. And Jesus is like, hey, listen up, guys. Before the waitress gets back with our chips and salsa, we need to have a little powwow here. Uh, one of y'all is about to betray me. That's not entirely what's taking place. Prior to Jesus predicting he would be betrayed, we see in John 13, 1 through 20, the disciples come in and Jesus washes their feet. Jews would have to go through this whole washing ritual before they would eat. It was like a time before Nike, so if you owned a pair of sandals, your toes would be exposed, and, and sandals were a luxury item, so most likely you were walking around barefoot in this, in this dirty desert culture. Your feet are dirty, whether you have sandals or not. And feet, like, let's be real, feet are not considered the most desirable part of the body. They're like purely utilitarian. They're kind of like an old truck, right? Like they'll get you from point A to point B, but they're not always super pretty to look at. And yet here we see Jesus with this knowledge that one of these 12 men is going to betray him. And Jesus knows exactly who it is that would betray him. And Jesus stoops down in humility and touches his disciples' feet which is something only slaves would do. Jesus is yet again showing he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom for many. 
But in our text today, Jesus is predicting his betrayal. This statement, one of you guys will betray me, sends shockwaves through the hearts of the disciples. Did Jesus really just say that one of, one of the twelve that I've, has been walking around, following him around for, for three years, was going to actually hand him over to the people that are seeking his life, to the people that are seeking to arrest Jesus? This is such an unbelievable statement. And yet it's coming from the lips of Jesus. From the mouth of Jesus, who has never, ever told a lie. So it must be true. But who could it be? Which one? Verse 19, it says, They begin to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. What we see in Jesus' prediction here is that it's creating a lot of self-distrust, and then it's creating a lot of hypocrisy as well. You can almost feel the tension in this room, right? The self-distrust comes out and like, surely you can't mean me, right? It's not me, is it? Oh, no, who did I talk to? What did I say? And then there's this hypocrisy side where they're like, he can't mean me. Surely he doesn't mean me. I mean, let's be honest. We've been in Mark now for about 18 months, and the disciples do not have a glowing track record of faithfulness to Jesus. Um, They're always having to be corrected. They're always having to be refocused. This thought that it's not me creates a lot of hypocrisy from the disciples, and there's going to be more on that in a second. But you can definitely feel the tension in this room. You can sense that they're kind of like looking around the circle like, Point the finger. I bet it's you. I bet it's you. It's not me. Uh, they're like not trusting one another, not trusting themselves, and that is growing more and more noticeable. And then I start to wonder what's going through Judas's mind when Jesus says this. And they're like, Jesus, is it me? And when they ask Jesus who it is, he doesn't alleviate their fears, he doesn't alleviate their distrust. He doesn't tell them who it is. He says, it's the one sharing the dish with me. And look, we can rightly assume that at one point or another in the night, every single one of these 12 apostles dipped bread in the same dish as Jesus. Jesus is in absolute control of this situation. He knows who his betrayer is. He knows what awaits him. He knows he's going to be arrested in a matter of hours. He knows he will be deserted by the remainder of the disciples. And even still, he washes his disciples' feet and shares the Passover meal with his disciples. He serves them to the very end of his life. Man, culturally speaking, what Jesus is doing, we would all agree, is very bad. Like taking money and betraying Jesus, betraying sinless Jesus, that's pretty bad. But in this culture, turning on someone who had just served you a feast, who had just washed your feet, turning on someone after you've accepted their hospitality and then injuring them is considered the most reprehensible thing you could do. So Jesus is making a point to call out the character of his betrayer. But why would Jesus say this at this point in the mill? He's offering Judas a warning. Judas, think about it, man. 
Think about what you're about to do. This whole discussion should have put Judas on guard. It should have put him on notice. It should have caused him to repent and forego his plan to betray Jesus. And then Jesus says what Daniel Aiken says is one of the most uh, profound and theologically significant statements in the Bible. And before we get into that, just as a brief aside, man, when you consider the cross event, when you consider the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, when you think about the cross of Christ, I want to encourage you just not to get bogged down with all the details, like the details of Judas betraying Jesus, the details of Peter rejecting Christ, the details of Jesus before Pilate. But primarily, first and foremost, I really want you to consider the person of Jesus in this story. This is a story. The whole Bible is a story anchored in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus suffered. Like, actually physically, spiritually, and emotionally suffered. And yet, he did so for the joy that was set before him. Jesus, in submitting to the will of the Father, whose will it was to crush him for the pardon and forgiveness of sin, showed that Jesus was not taken by surprise in this situation. He knew what would happen to the very last detail. Jesus is in total control here, and he suffered. Willingly suffered and suffered brutally in our place. So Jesus is now shifting our focus from the betrayer to his actual suffering. And in a treacherous and shameful manner, the Lord will experience humiliation. The Lord of glory is being handed over to those who seek his life. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. So he says this about his betrayer. So let's unpack this a little bit. Jesus, through humiliation, will be exalted. Jesus, who has been exalted and glorious from the very beginning of time, steps out of heavenly perfection, lives a perfect, sinless life, suffers and dies and is resurrected according to the Scriptures. As this verse says, For it is written, All of this does not happen by accident. It was ordained from the beginning. Jesus was not plan B. He's been the plan from the beginning, from before creation. So Jesus is telling his disciples this. The Son of Man will go and lay his life down as it is written. These disciples would have a hard time understanding a victorious Messiah who dies. But Jesus is telling them that his death is not the end. But rather, his death means victory over his enemies, and the uh, accompanied resurrection means that God's gracious and glorious plan for salvation to sinners is accomplished. And we have these predictions of, of Jesus being betrayed in the Old Testament. Psalm 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And yet, as Judas seems predestined for this event, nowhere in Scripture do we see predestination canceling out human responsibility. Predestination meaning this. In the widest sense of the word, predestination is a theological doctrine that from eternity, God has foreordained all things which come to pass. And in a narrower sense for our purposes today, 
It means that Christ, the cross event, the resurrection, all of it starts with Judas betraying Jesus. Jesus was predestined to be betrayed, to be crucified, to be resurrected in fulfillment of the prophets. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in fulfillment of Daniel's victorious figure in Daniel 7. And Jesus weds this victorious person to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. The path to Christ's victory is a path that leads to his death and his resurrection. And the path that leads to his arrest is a path marked with betrayal. And yet Jesus is still grieved, knowing all of this. Jesus loves Judas. Jesus cares for Judas. He had just washed Judas' feet. And knowing full well what Judas had planned on doing, he is grieved because Judas' eternal punishment is going to be significantly worse, the text seems to tell us, It would have been better for Judas had he never been born. Judas, though, had been foreordained to betray Jesus. He is still morally responsible for the actions he took against Jesus. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Divine sovereignty does not cancel out human freedom and human responsibility. Both are true biblically, so we have to affirm both. So I want to talk about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper here for a second and then come back to Judas as we close. Um, So after Jesus makes this prediction, we see a shift in the evening. Uh, Jesus comes back to the Passover celebration. Jesus is doing away with the old order of doing things. Daniel Aiken says, things are progressing as normal in this Passover celebration. And then Jesus utters the words of a madman. Verse 22, it says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus is introducing a new sacrament or a new sign pointing to the new covenant that is coming. He's introducing a new sign into the Passover meal. The new is replacing the old. In a few hours from this moment, the old sacrament of a bloody and slain lamb will be fulfilled and will have served its purposes forever. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfills the entire Old Testament and the entire sacrificial system. And Jesus is linking the Passover of the Hebrews in Exodus to the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. What he's saying is that both are significant, for they both point towards him. And they both point towards his all-sufficient sacrifice for freedom and forgiveness and for rescue of his people. Passover points us forward to the cross of Christ. The Lord's Supper points us back to the cross of Christ and then points us forward again to his return. Verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Again, just as a reminder, Passover is a time where they're celebrating their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They would put blood of lambs on their doors, and the Spirit of the Lord would pass over the house, thus saving everyone inside. Jesus is establishing a new covenant through his death, through his blood. What Jesus is calling his disciples to remember uh, when he's calling them to remember the Passover is that He is pointing them forward to what is about to take place. 
There can be no rescue. There can be no forgiveness. There can be no remission of sins apart from the shedding of blood. There is no covenant or relationship between God and man apart from the shedding of Christ's blood. Apart from Christ's work on the cross and the presence of his Holy Spirit to call you to faith in Jesus, you are actually an enemy of God. Man, to be reconciled with God, in order to be forgiven by God, in order to have a right relationship with God, you have to have faith in God that he has forgiven you of your sins. And there can be no reconciliation apart from the shedding of Christ's blood as an atoning sacrifice to you. You are unable to perform your own substitutionary offering. You cannot do enough good works on your own. You cannot do enough to save yourself. You cannot offer enough lambs or works or anything to save yourself. We have this new covenant in place. And communion or the Lord's Supper is a place to remind the church of God throughout the ages that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was sacrificed in our place and also that he is coming again. Man, so we take the bread as a symbol of his body, and we take the wine or the juice, if you're a strict Baptist, as a symbol of his blood, and we remember the cross, and we await his glorious return. We take the Lord's Supper in a worshipful manner, remembering what Christ did for us in love, and we look forward with hope to his return and the consummation of the kingdom. Man, we believe that the elements are, are purely symbols, not actually the real body and, and blood of Jesus. And I believe that Christ's Spirit is active and present while believers take communion. When the church takes communion, we are communicating a unity amongst the family of God. Communion doesn't save us. It's meant to strengthen our devotion and our love for the Lord as we remember the cross of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to take communion corporately as a body. Um, we're going to take communion corporately as a family as we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Man, but before we transition to that time, I want us to consider Judas one more time. As we are moving towards a time of communion together, um, I just ask each of you to consider your own lives in this moment. Some commentators said that when Jesus is predicting this betrayal, he was allowing the disciples some level of introspection and self-examination, which is actually a gift to them. And, and I think he's inviting us all to do the same this morning. So here's a couple of questions. Man, are you walking in sin? Just walking in ongoing, unrepentant, willful sin. Are you just walking in unbelief? Man, are you trusting in confidence in Jesus' death and resurrection to you? Or are you doing just enough, trying to do just enough, trying to be just good enough, trying to earn God's love just enough? Man, when Jesus tells the disciples, one of you is going to betray me, we see in this text that he isn't specific to Judas. He could have just said, hey, Judas is about to betray me. Let's get him. He didn't do that. But he actually says, one of the twelve is going to betray me. One of the twelve who has dipped his bread into the same dish with me. That's all of them. 
The answer to the disciples' question of, is it I, requires a yes from every single one of us. Yes, it was Judas who betrayed Jesus into the hands of those who wanted to arrest and kill him. And yes, in a few hours from the time of this text, the other 11 would abandon Jesus in the garden. Judas betrays Jesus out of greed, and the others betray him out of fear and weakness. And you and I, we betray him too. We are all Judas. Man, we are all Judas because we have all sinned against the perfect and holy and righteous Savior, Jesus. Every single one of us. All have sinned, says Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have sinned and rebelled against God. And yet, God's grace, man, is so real and so present, and he is offering us a way to experience forgiveness and life and freedom. And the only thing we can do now is repent. The only thing we can do is turn from our sin and believe in the cross and resurrection to us. Repentance is a kindness and a mercy to you, and it's been freely offered to you on the cross. Man, if you're walking in ongoing, willful, unrepentant sin, don't leave here unchanged by the grace of God. I believe that Jesus' words are true about his betrayer. They're true for every single one of us who doesn't turn from our sin and put our faith in Christ. That it would be better for the unrepentant sinner to have never been born. Because of the punishment that awaits, man. All of those that don't follow Jesus in faith and dependency, you're punishment is eternal and it is severe and it is significant and Christ is offering you a way to be forgiven and a way to be restored and a way to be reconciled and a way to be redeemed and a way to not suffer eternal death and eternal punishment turn to Christ in faith turn to Christ in belief that he did in fact die for the forgiveness of your sins and rose from the grave defeating sin and death and turned to him in dependency, that he is worthy to have your whole life, to use you as he sees fits, fit, to grow you in his likeness and to lavish on you the grace and mercy and love that you are so desperately craving. Let's pray.